As the United States began to slowly reopen the economy and gain some sense of normalcy during a pandemic, we find ourselves in familiar territory. A police officer has killed a black man, leading to protests in the streets. We are hurting and we are tired. I'm Adina White. And I'm Kara Wilkins. On this special bonus episode of Black Belt Voices, we take a look back at America's long history of racial violence. Professor Brian Mitchell from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock returns to weigh in with a historical perspective on what we're seeing now and how it compares to history and what he thinks needs to happen as a next step forward. Listening to the Black Belt Voices podcast, propagating the richness of Black Southern culture by telling stories from and about Black folks down South. This week, we mark the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. If you haven't heard of it, it may be because it's not taught in schools. This fall, it will officially become part of Oklahoma's curriculum. In a nutshell, The Greenwood District in Tulsa was dubbed Black Wall Street. At the time, it was the wealthiest Black community in the country. On May 30th, 1921, 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a young Black shoe shiner, was accused of assaulting 17-year-old Sarah Page, a white elevator operator in a building in downtown Tulsa. The next day, the Tulsa Tribune printed a story saying Rowland had tried to rape Page with an editorial saying a lynching was planned for that night. Black and white men gathered at the courthouse. There was a confrontation and 12 people were shot dead. 10 white and two black. White mobs rampaged through the Greenwood district, killing people, burning homes, and looting stores. In 24 hours, 35 square blocks were burned and 1,200 homes were destroyed. 10,000 black people were left homeless and property damage accounted for more than $2.2 million. That's the equivalent of about $32.2 million today. Historians believe as many as 300 people died. Charles Blow of the New York Times writes, white riots have often historically targeted black people while black people have rioted to protest injustice. On either side, racism is the root. Here's Dr. Brian Mitchell. Uh, Blacks realize that they're not being listened to. And what America values more than black bodies is property. So they start attacking property instead of attacking people. And when we talk about the effectiveness of the strategy, I ask people to look to uh, 19... 67 and 1968 with the riots and look at what it culminated in and it culminated in the Kerner Commission. The Kerner Commission is the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. It was established by President Lyndon B. Johnson to investigate the causes of the 1967 race riots. He wanted to know what happened? Why did it happen? What can we do to prevent it from happening again? And that commission came up with a list of priorities 
uh, in the black community. And what's important about this list of priorities that they come up with in the conclusion is those exact problems that they come up with are the same problems that we're having in our communities today. And if you want to know what the first item on that list was, was police. That very first item on the list in, in, in 1968 were black police. So we haven't, we, we haven't fixed anything, 50, 50 plus years, and it's, we have the same problems. We haven't moved from square one. The report released February 29th, 1968, after a seven-month investigation. It also found that riots resulted from black frustration at the lack of economic opportunity. It berated federal and state governments for failed housing, education, and social service policies. It called to create new jobs, construct new housing, it recommended to hire more diverse and sensitive police forces, and most notably, to invest billions in housing programs aimed at breaking up residential segregation. Unfortunately, LBJ ignored the report and rejected the recommendations. Just over a month later, rioting happened again after Dr. King was assassinated. To understand America's history with blacks moving north to cities and rioting, you have to go all the way back to the 13th Amendment and the beginning of Reconstruction in the United States. When the 13th Amendment was passed and African-Americans were released from bondage, as quickly as the 13th Amendment was passed, there were loopholes in it that enabled Blacks to be re-enslaved. Um, so when you hear scholars say that slavery never ended, what they're really talking about is this attempt to get free labor from us um, after the passage of the 13th Amendment. And like I said, inside of the 13th Amendment was buried a loophole, and that is uh, involuntary slavery uh, is illegal except as punishment for a crime. Um, that loophole was exploited almost immediately. People began making up uh, laws in which they could arrest African-Americans and put them back to work. Um, and Reconstruction itself is often described as a moment in the sun because it was a brief, it was a brief experiment that Americans had with uh, Blacks having civil liberties. And we excelled during that period. Don't let anybody tell you that Reconstruction was a failure. Don't let anybody tell you that Reconstruction didn't work out. From the moment Reconstruction started, Southern whites resisted it, violently resisted it. And when they tell you they don't like uh, looting, they don't like riots, they don't like protests, throughout Reconstruction, that's all they did. They marched, they burned crap, they shot people, they went to houses, they burned churches, anything they could to disrupt the government. Now, in the 1876 election, I've got to go backwards a little bit. 1874, Colfax massacre. Uh, Colfax was a, uh, 
a, a county seat in Louisiana. And whites were intent on taking back the government. So they decided to go uh, and burn the city hall and the courthouse. And blacks in that county got together to defend it. But they did not anticipate that whites would come in great number with the weapons that they had. I mean, they came with cannons. And the, the blacks were outnumbered. Uh, and not only did they uh, prohibit them from voting and, and attack the courthouse, but they killed them. They, they told them to get on their knees and shot them. And that case will go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's ruling will open up the American South for white-on-black violence. It maintained that it was not the position of the federal government to investigate murders uh, when these murders didn't involve federal troops, federal officers. Uh, he said that, uh, they said that these were citizens of the state, and it was up to the states to oversee those uh, cases. Well, whites realized we can control the courtrooms, we can control the juries, and we can get uh, all of these cases thrown out. So they begin to ramp up violence. And when we get to the presidential election of 1876, violence is a tool that is used to keep blacks from the polls. The election ends at a dead tie with Louisiana and Florida providing so much violence that nobody even knows if the results are valid in those states. This left it up to the House of Representatives to decide who the next president was going to be, Tilden or Hayes. And in one of the saddest episodes in American history, uh, the Republican Party will betray African Americans by cutting a deal that is now known as uh, the Compromise of 1877. They say they tell the Democrats, we'll make a deal with you. If you let us have, if you let us have the presidency, we'll meet the demands that you want. And the demands that were laid out by the Democrats were we want you to move the federal troops that have been protecting blacks out of the South. We want you to stay out of the South in regard to race relations. And so if there are any cases in court, we don't want you to interfere. If there's any atrocities, none of your business. And we want money to rebuild the South. Uh, the, US, uh, the, the Republicans agree to this, and they leave us high and dry. After that, a reign of terror like we never imagined is poured down to us. And the reason that they, they need this terror is it's very hard to take people that have had a taste of freedom and make them into slaves again. And many people faced with persecution, faced with violence, intimidation, faced with having their land stolen, would decide to move out of the South pouring into the North, pouring into industrial centers. Now, you have to remember that the North was the domain 
largely of white immigrants. And as blacks moved in, they had to compete with these immigrants for space, for jobs, for housing. And it's under this competition that industrials begin to use blacks against whites and whites against blacks. The white union is picketing my mill and I need people to come in and work. I hire blacks who I wouldn't have hired before to come in and break the strike lines. All that does is ensure that those white immigrants won't let blacks join their unions, but they did let their blacks join their unions before. So blacks say, we just want jobs. And it's under this pressure of competition that the first race riots in urban cities begin to to break out. And they're all started by really, really small sparks. Uh, When we talk about the Chicago race riot, the Chicago race riot was started by a young man swimming on the wrong side of the beach in Lake Michigan, the white side of the beach. And there's no dividing line in the middle of, the, of Lake Michigan where you could see uh, this is white or this is black. And this is a small child. Swims over to the wrong side. He's bombarded with bricks and bottles and ends up dead. And that kicks off a riot that lasts several days and ends with hundreds of people injured. When we talk about uh, the Tulsa riot, you have to understand the dynamics in Tulsa were different. Tulsa was an extremely successful Black community. And in this community, um, the neighboring community was not as affluent. There were poor whites that were there. And That riot starts when a lady is taking an elevator and she maintains that someone touched her in the elevator. And a black man in the elevator, in a crowded elevator, is accused of that crime. And this is the excuse uh, that makes it possible for whites to go maraud the black community, burn down their houses, burn down their theater, burn down Uh, the shops and the groceries. They had uh, multiple black newspapers. They had their own black bus services. They had their own black taxi services. They had their own black hospital. And we're talking in the 1920s. So uh, blacks, when we talk about the success of African-Americans and what's deterred African-American success, you have to realize that African-Americans after the Civil War were doing very well for themselves. They were moving in the right direction. But if you had a captive business audience, you had people that were always had to buy from you no matter what you charged them, you don't want to lose these customers. And they did not want to compete against black merchants. So they burned down black businesses and their competition was gone. Dr. Mitchell points out that northern cities weren't always segregated. Before the 1800s, they were integrated. Segregation came after Reconstruction, 
once there was a demand for civil rights and for black people to be treated like white people. That was the border that kept blacks out of the social arena that whites navigated. Once that disappeared, whites wanted space to prohibit blacks from coming into their businesses and interacting with their children and families. Uh, They still wanted the convenience of having black maids, uh, but they wanted to be able to send them away now. Uh, (laughs) At the end of the day, uh, Hattie, you got to go. We will put you on the bus and you just go back to your neighborhood. Uh, Blacks have to understand that the the poverty that we live with and the communities uh, that we live in were constructed by whites to contain us. They were not constructed for us to prosper in those spaces. And uh, America refuses to talk about this. You know, we, a lot of people talk. I, I had a fantastic professor. His name was Arnold Hirsch. And he wrote uh, a book called The Making of the Second Ghetto Thesis, which was about urban race relations. And his argument was, he said, you don't have to look all the way back to slavery to justify reparations. So you need only go and look at uh, the planning and the formation of, of, of what we call American ghettos. Uh, now we don't call them ghettos, they call them now uh, racially concentrated areas of poverty is what HUD uh, identifies them as. But these were created for us. And when we talk about Blacks, uh, food deserts, uh, differences in in public health, uh, differences in education. None of these things could be possible without geographical divides. And it's important when we look at these riots that are going on right now, that we look at where the people choose to riot. Um, This history of of blocking interstates is extremely important to the protest movement. It's not merely about stopping traffic. Most of these interstates were created as walls, as boundaries to keep Black folk in. And if you can get on that wall and you can prohibit uh, the city from moving for a hour or f- 10 minutes or 15 minutes, America gets to feel what Black people have felt for 400 years. You're stuck and you can't go unless I let you go. Keep in mind what I said, our problems in America have been constructed constructed. We've known about these problems. 1968, the Urban League did a study of poorest communities in America. I know we're all from Arkansas. We're all in Arkansas. But what is amazing is Arkansas topped that list that year the poorest community in the state, the Little Rock area. And they had moved that in the the preceding years, they had gotten rid of all the Western 
black suburbs like West Rock. And West Rock's a community which I talk about a lot, write about a lot. My father-in-law was uh, the last, his father was the last family to move out of West Rock. And these were all black communities. But once they realized that the schools were going to be integrated and there was no more fighting that, they had to move these people all to one side of the city. And that's when they also decide to build 630 to create a concrete wall to keep them on their side of the city. That's when they begin underfunding these communities. That's when they begin moving out businesses and moving them to the other side of the highway. But the real killing blow for the black urban community wasn't until uh, the Nixon administration. Uh, As drugs began to escalate and drugs became more of a problem in the city, um, many middle-class and upper-class black families wished to leave. You know, I can afford to have a better school, a better house. I don't need these problems. And uh, many, th- many times we see things as a blessing, like the Fair Housing Act. You can go live wherever you want to live. That was the kill. That was the, the kiss of death for largely um, many of the, the black middle class and upper class that lived in the inner city. Because now they can move out to the suburbs. Now I can send my kid to Fair Park when Fair Park was all that. And people moved out. And without that support from black middle class and upper class, the big powerful churches that were part of the historic landmark of the city began to die. The institutions became, began to die. The historically black colleges began to die. There is connection. You have to know your history. And the old adage is correct. History does repeat itself. The question this time is, what happens next? Where will these protests get us? George Floyd was killed after an officer placed a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. In addition to having video evidence, Dr. Mitchell says what makes Floyd's murder different is its undeniability. Everyone clearly identified what happened as a murder. Nothing more, nothing less. And while we have the nation's attention right now, I don't know how much of what we see police chiefs doing, you know, going out and kneeling with the crowds, going out and praying with the crowds, going out and hugging people are gestures for the press that will have no lasting effects for the community. The question is, you know, how are we going to reform the community? And I wish there was a group of leaders, black leaders, who who were standing up and, and demanding particular changes in the community. You know, people keep saying, if you listen to CNN, if you listen to MSBC, people are saying all the time, 
we need reforms. We need to do more for the black community. But none of the people with the power to do or change any of these things are saying that. And the only thing I'm hearing from the president, uh, the, 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 the most sounding, resounding thing that I heard from the president was his crackdown today on all protests, peaceful or otherwise, that he wants curfews, that he wants tear gas, and that he wants them stopped. Uh, you know, I can assure, I could, I could assure him that these aren't going to stop that easy. So they really need to be thinking, what are we actually willing to do to fix the problem? And it's not a problem we can fix. A lot of people think that there's a quick fix to racism. And racism is the mortar that holds America together. It is what makes us believe or what made white people coming from Europe who spoke different languages believe that they had something in common with each other, despite of their social class, despite of their interests, despite of their religious differences, we are all the same people, white. It is the fabric of our country. And until we realize that and, and commit ourselves to, and that means we have to change everything in the United States. We have to change the way we teach our kids. We can't keep teaching them a lie all through school. And then they come to me and they say, well, this is what I've been told my whole life. You're telling me this is untrue. We have to, we can't teach our children these lies anymore about our country. Our country belonged to Native Americans. We came, we killed them all. We took their land. We needed people to work that land. We took people from Africa. We exploited them to, to work this land. And unless we're willing to face that ugly truth, nothing's going to get better. Until we're ready to correct that problem, nothing's going to get better. And just like I said, this is going to take a long, long time. It's going to take a lot, a lot of money. And the same way we dig in our pockets every year to bail out farmers, to create subsidies for industry, we're going to have to dig in our, our pockets and figure out a way to fix these lives that we've broken in these communities that we've constructed. Everything we're doing now is a Band-Aid, even the stuff that feels good. In 2014 and 2015, it was all about body cameras. But we're just seeing more video evidence of black people being killed but consuming black death doesn't seem to be changing the system. And if we have to protest for an arrest to even happen, if the courts and juries aren't willing to convict people, what does that get us but more frustration? If we obviously need reform, but how far does that go? Um, there's a lot of research out there and talk about defunding the police and allocating those resources to health care, education, jobs, housing, and other services, completely dismantling the system rather than patchwork fixes. Right. It's hard to fix something that was made to work this way. We can't even get rid of police that, that we know have repetitively killed unarmed Black people. If, if you can't get rid of a, a, that small problem, okay, you kill people, the person had no weapon on them, you had no reason for doing it, you can't be a policeman anymore. 
if that is a difficult thing for you to do, all these other things are impossible. That's just a small step. I mean, one of the, the first things they should do is start looking at these police and finding out, okay, if you have a history of racism, why are you policing our Black community? And uh, why are a disproportionate number of your arrests uh, Black and Brown people? And one of the things that we could do first on is look at all of these officers and get rid of problematic officers. If you're out there posting that you're a white supremacist and you hate Blacks, how can you, black, you police the Black community fairly? And time and time again, you're seeing these police over the last week or two post things and get fired, do things or get fired. But that's only while this riot is happening. After this is over with, uh, those people are going to go work in other police districts and other communities. And they're not going to give up their beliefs. We have to figure out a way to dismantle racism. We have to figure out a way to dismantle racism. We're past the cops handing out ice cream for the cameras. We can't get anywhere if we can't acknowledge as a nation the impact slavery has had and still has on the black community and how it affects everything from the way we're treated by police to our public health. We're in a pandemic. COVID-19 kills black people disproportionately. And now we're out here protesting because the police kill black people disproportionately. The black community is looking for leadership to get together and outline real next steps. Some leaders, like President Barack Obama and former Attorney General Eric Holder, have presented some options for the Black community to take under consideration. And uh, we're based in Central Arkansas, and I'm in Conway, which is in the Little Rock Metro, and, you know, Kara, you're, she's in Little Rock. And, like, both of our cities have had protests, you know, and, and followed by, of course, some agitators. Here, our agitators look like, you know, very large trucks with offensive messages on them and Confederate flags. And and then, you know, of course, it, then it turns, they agitate, then police come out in riot gear and tear gas and all that. So, and of course, we don't have to bring, I mean, it's been going around how differently Trump is talking about these protesters versus the ones protesting, opening up the economy so they can get a haircut. Agreed. And I would even say the riot gear with police alone is a huge agitator that we've seen happen across the country. Um, most of the protests that have been happening everywhere, including here in central Arkansas, have been peaceful. Um, people come out in the daytime of all ages, um, of all races, because I will say that there have been a lot of white allies who have been out and walking and marching in the streets alongside Black people. Here in Little Rock, our mayor walked in one of our um, protests. But as soon as the nighttime comes, the police come and it just takes on a completely different tone because you have armed, basically, officers armed with military-grade weaponry, um, you know, against water bottles and college-age students. These are young people, you know? These are people who really, in my opinion, um, are just uh, expressing their beliefs 
and have not shown any agitation from their side? If so, that would be happening in the daytime and we see that it's not. So it's not the young people that are making these protests turn violent. Um, They have been able to, in my opinion, uh, hold themselves very well in terms of holding themselves accountable. The other night, the protesters here in Little Rock went to the governor's mansion with no problems. They did not vandalize. There was no looting on their route. But as soon as they went to the governor's mansion, the governor had called in a full force of the state troopers to be out front of his house and other armed guards, which to me was just uncalled for because people have the right to protest. Also, there is like a 50 foot fence around your property. So they're like, you're pretty much okay, but that's neither here nor there. I saw a tweet that said the police are rioting and it made perfect sense because I mean, they're coming out in full force and that that agitates that presence itself agitates and and you know sometimes we when we say violence we don't i say we but i hear a lot of people saying you know there's violence so the police came and tear gas people so i'm like but that's not violence it's, it's kind of like we're not exactly. what the police do is not considered violence and i think that's why we're in this boat because people we i mean we think the police do us right that's what this country we've been taught but just like any American institution, like Dr. Mitchell said, racism exists in policing. And 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 we know it's not just on one side of the aisle. It's not just the Trump supporting Republicans or conservatives. We have uh, Amy Cooper from who's in Central Park in New York, you know, a very blue liberal city and who who was found to be a supporter of the Democratic Party, who called the cops on Christian Cooper because he told her to leash her dog. And she, she knew what she was doing because she said, I'm going to call and say an African-American man is threatening me. So, yeah, so racism exists on both sides of the aisle. And um, is is going to be, I think we have to name it in order to get past it. Whether we want to escape it or we want to try to imagine ourselves as not having a racial component, like the people who say, I don't see color. Uh, we all do, and we all have been conditioned by America. I mean, uh, we have all been brought up in this atmosphere from the moment that we begin to watch television, or be, or, or the instant that we begin to able to able to have conversation, we are indoctrinated with racist beliefs, and we can't. That's what what we were saying before. We can't. Uh, have another generation go through this. I mean, we, this is something that we can end if we worked collectively to end it. It's not anybody's tradition. It's not anybody's heritage. This is a conditioning that's meant to give privilege, economic privilege and social privilege to a particular group of citizens. And we can end that. It would take a long time, but we could do it. And I kind of want to go back to Amy Cooper and like racism on the left that we now, you know, we kind of call that implicit bias and stuff now. But like she knew what she was doing because she knew enough to evoke the whole, I'm going to call and say you're African-American male. So you may have gotten, I'm sure all of us have probably gotten a few texts or Facebook messages from well-meaning white friends, probably more likely to be your left-leaning friends saying, 
you know, I care about you. What can I do to support you? Like, I'm here for you. And so I was talking about this with a couple more folks I work with who are black and we were like, what, so what, how do we answer? So I think that'd be a neat exercise for us to go through and say, what, what's your advice for white people right now who want to help? And because I know we probably have the listeners we have who are white, probably, you know, of course they lean progressive. So I, I think mine is what you said about acknowledgement. And I think for me, it's, it's that self, uh, self introspect, that introspection, because so right. many times it's easy to blame the Trump supporters for the outward racism and, and to say, I voted for Hillary, I voted for Obama. Um, I have a couple of black friends, but they know, they know them not to say that. But I think, I think it's just looking inward because we all have anti-black bias that's in us. Cause I saw something, I think in the Charles Blow article or like, no, it wasn't that, it was something else. But it was like, we're not born racist, but we come out breathing it in the air. So when we take that first breath, I mean, it's there from the hospital. I mean, it's there. So it's like, I think, I think for me, for a white person, they don't have to go out and march. They don't have to necessarily speak out on social media, but like look inside yourself and look at how white supremacy is in your life because I'm black and I saw it in mine. And because it is, it's, well, not may not white supremacy, but maybe some internal, you know, anti-blackness up in there that you have to, you have to root out. So I think we all need to do that. So I guess that's what I would say to a white person. And, and, and there's self-hate that even comes up in our community, you know? Yes. The idea that uh, people with European qualities are better. Or you got good hair. I, I didn't been in, you know, uh, looking at the babies at the hospital and people talking about, oh, your baby got good hair, girl. Yeah, right. You know? So, so they're immersing them, their their children, in, you know, a racist belief, right there at the time, you know, shortly after they're they're born, they're they're sharing these qualities about skin color and and hair texture. Um, I agree with you about white allies. I mean, the most important thing that I think uh, allies can do is call out white people because they can call out white people where we can't and they can hear conversations that we can't. And by calling something out, uh, they help us to identify where the problems are that we are not able to see because uh, we're not there all the time. We live in a very divided, very polarized society where uh, some of the time there aren't any Black people present and the conversations go on. And these conversations affect whether you're going to get a raise at work. They affect who's going to get the promotion. They affect who might get the A or B in a class. You know, And it's important that those allies are on those lines saying, uh, no, you're not going to do this to this person. Another thing, like, I like it when I see white folks who've, who've read something and, like, who know, who know the language, who know that yeah. racism isn't just, doesn't go away just because you married a black guy or you married a, well, I want to be fair. I just went one way, but typically that's, a, I mean, you know, you have some black children, you have some black relatives in your family. Like, that, that's now the new one black friend is now, oh, I have black children or I have a black husband or spouse or something. That's like, that's a simple step. That when we talked about things that we could do to make sure that this message is spreading and that there is a consciousness is one of the things that we can do is petition to make sure if Arkansas history is a required course for uh, to get a history degree uh, or to graduate from college, you know, uh, 
some sort of ethnic history should be required for people to complete a degree. Uh, if we're going to teach history that's largely myth, then what we, we have to break down these walls against teaching history as it really happened and teaching. Uh, a lot of people say, well, I don't like to expose kids to slavery too early. They were kids that were slaves, you know? <laughs> so why would you have any quarrel? You didn't have any problem, you know? They didn't have any problem enslaving children their age. So why would you have any problem teaching uh, children that slavery existed and what slavery was really like? Um, I know at my son's school, at one of the schools he attended, I had to show up because he was told that slavery was... Um, that the the masters were benevolent and it's just like they were they treated the slaves as their own children and i was like oh no <laughs> we're not going to have that being taught to to children here cuz that's a lie it's a blatant lie and it you know and but there are things that we can do on that front to make sure that people are learning now i can tell you already just from uh the efforts that I've made and other people have made, that there's resistance, very strong resistance in teaching uh, the truth and in and, and regards to race and white supremacy in America. Uh, there are people who are going to say, I don't want my children learning about any of this. And I can tell you, there are people who take my U.S. history class and they will write, oh, Dr. Mitchell is a fantastic uh, professor. And, but I think he's a racist because he's made me learn about black people in U.S. history, or he made me learn about Chinese people in U.S. history, or he made me learn about Hispanic Americans in U.S. history. And my response is always, that is America. America doesn't belong to just white people, even though you will hear them declare it. This is my country. I've been here longer than you have. <laughs> uh, slave, the transatlantic slave, you know, slave trade ended 1808. I mean, so that means y'all didn't come to, to 1860. I've been here longer than y'all have been here. Yet y'all are claiming it as yours. The United States belongs to all of us. History, the history that's there has all of us in it. And it should be taught that way. It shouldn't just be great white men. I think part of the struggle now versus the 60s and before is that now we think we've made it because on paper, everything is pretty much, you know, quote unquote fair. And we have a black, black people. We have, we have, we can point to examples of black success. We can point to examples of like, you know, interracial relationships and, and the young people are just all hanging out together. But it's like, I think that's what's that's stopping us now in progress is that people think we've made it. And like, I saw, I saw a funny quote, like it was on um, the next question show. It's about, you know, it's, it's taking race to the next question and not just the surface level stuff. Anyway, um, the guy on but there black, said that. Black excellence exists not because of these laws. Black excellence exists in spite of discrimination and racism. I mean, we're, I mean it, it is something that says, it speaks loads about our resiliency as a people. Yeah, Think that, about it. 
Yeah. Every when we talk about who's the true Americans, who are the first people to come here, have everything taken away from them and reconstructed themselves anew. Europeans came here, they kept their language, they kept their religions, they kept everything. And they made little uh, communities mirrored after where they came from. We were, we were the first people to come here that had to give up everything and start all over again. And we're constantly giving up things and starting all over again. Constantly <laughs> yeah. innovating things because we have no other choice. That is how we survived in this country. And that, but the, to me, that is the strength of our people, and that's the beauty of our people. And that's why everyone loves our art. That's why everyone loves our music. That's why everyone loves black culture. They just don't love black people. That's why we get through to people. Like, if, if we can sit here and and say, "What about Obama? What about Oprah? What about these successful black people?" I think that kind of proves a point that we can sit here and name a handful of black people. Black excellence, because there is a thing as black excellence, that kind of shows you that there's some kind of disparities going on. If right. if we can point to a few examples of why things are good now, and I, I just and when I see black people doing that thing, I, I just I don't I don't know. I, I just want to I, I don't I, I just want to have people, folks be more informed so that they won't be that black voice that the white people listen to, because they don't recognize their own anti-blackness. Dr. Mitchell has four things he said will be good next practical steps for progression. First, um, reform the police departments. And what I mean by reform the police departments is we know who the black bad cops are. We know who gets the reports. We know who gets the problems. We can check social media and find out what people are posting. If if there are uh, so-called bad apples, get those bad apples the hell out of there. Uh, number two, reform the justice system. Uh, take away limited immunity for these police officers that do bad things. Um, make sure that a sentencing, you get away from these mandatory minimum sentencings that have uh, disproportionately put blacks in prison and Hispanics and Native Americans in prison. You, you get away from that system completely. You put more money in, uh, where into education in the poorest communities. Uh, you know, right now we send more money to the, the communities uh, where there's wealth and privilege than we do to the education of the people who need it the most. So if we could redirect our funding in education and begin to teach these children uh, about who they are, make them feel as though they have a place in America. They're just not accidents that happened here, or people that... Uh, by happenstance uh, of slavery made, and I hate to call slavery happenstance. Uh, they are, they're, they're not just the children of enslaved people. They were children of people who were doctors and lawyers and teachers and chiefs and, and kings and queens that happened to be stolen from their native homes. On our next bonus episode, we'll hear from some of the protesters and people who have been boots on the ground in protesting the George Floyd case. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Black Bell Voices podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. 
You can also listen to the Black Belt Voices podcast on most streaming platforms. This episode was edited and produced by Katrina Dubins with music composed by Prentice Dubins Jr. Black Belt Voices is a production of Black Belt Media, LLC.